Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I am a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's a special edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series. This is one of our Hot Topics recordings, where we aim to provide timely information to help patients, the general public, and healthcare professionals better understand a current popular topic. Today's episode will focus on how two common conditions, and really three common conditions, occurring in the midst of our current global COVID-19 pandemic are coinciding, seasonal allergies, the common cold, and COVID-19. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Ann Ellis, who is a professor of medicine, chair of the Division of Allergy and Immunology, and the director of the Allergy Research Unit at the Kingston Health and Science Center in Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Ellis has extensive research experience investigating the impact of aeroallergen exposure on inflammation as well as future development of allergic conditions. Dr. Ellis's novel Environmental Exposure Unit is an internationally recognized and validated controlled allergen challenge model of allergic rhinitis. Dr. Ellis has made countless contributions to the field of allergy and immunology, including in her current role, serving on the Joint Task Force for Practice Parameters. Dr. Ellis was a guest on the podcast at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was just a few months ago, helping us all understand the overlap of spring pollen allergies with COVID-19. And we are thrilled to have her back for an encore to discuss these pertinent issues this autumn as well. And with that, Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and coming back to the show. Welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, David. Now, I'm sorry that we have to have you back discussing a similar topic to what we talked about just a few months ago. <laughs> well, I think we all knew in our hearts that this wasn't going to be something that was going to be resolved in a few short months. So. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so speaking of which, we're recording this in early September 2020, and you know we all know the world continues to grapple with COVID-19, uh, while we're also now trying to figure out the start of the new school year uh, with a lot of you know children throughout the world going back to in-person learning uh, and children of all ages. So before we get into the meat of the conversation, how are things where you are in Canada? And more importantly, how are you holding up personally? Well, thank you for that question. I'm in Kingston, as you've mentioned, and, you know, we really have been quite lucky uh, where we are. We, we really we call ourselves we're in our COVID bubble. Um, mm. We at the peak of the epidemic, we had three hospitalized patients only. Um, we're sitting at just over 100 uh, cases for the Kingston, Frontenac, Lennox-Nyington region, um, all but two of which are resolved currently. Um, so we're in the so-called green zone um, on, based on our, our, our tracking of, of active cases. Um, so w things may change, and we anticipate that they will with uh, schools going um, reopening and everyone going back to school. Today is the first day of school for uh, half of the mm. children in the Limestone District School Board. Um, tomorrow, the other half go back, uh, but they're just on a staggered entry. So I think it'll be, it's not until September 14th that everyone's back full time in our region. Uh, I think that's when things will really get interesting. <laughs> Wow. Well, what's the what's the magic secret? I mean, it's fantastic that your area has not been impacted by this as other areas, such as, you know, your neighbors to the south of the United States. But any words of wisdom as to what may have helped reduce the spread? I think, honestly, our citizens were just very good at following what was recommended. You know, we had signs up. Our The city of Kingston actually posted signs everywhere saying, stay safe, stay home. Um, we have a lot of people who work for government um, organizations in Kingston, so with the universities, the colleges, uh, the prisons, the hospitals. Um, a lot of us have, um, you know, employers that fully supported everybody converting to work from home um, and kept people employed, which I think makes a big difference as well. And just in general, I think we really took it seriously uh, in our community. And uh, I think that made a huge difference. And we stopped. We didn't. We didn't want to expose ourselves to the the hot bed areas. So a lot of us said, "That's it. We're not going to Toronto. We're not going to go to Montreal. We're just going to stay put." And I think that really made a big difference. 
Mm. Oh, well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you've, uh, you've stayed well and your area is doing quite well during all this. Uh, but, and before we get into you know, some of the more specifics in regards to today's topic, would you mind sharing how old your children are and, and what their current plans are for the upcoming school year? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my oldest is uh, returning to third year uh, university at Queens here in mm -hmm. town. Um, my second oldest has just moved in yesterday to her new place in Ottawa, and she's going to be studying nursing there. And then my youngest is going into grade four, and her first day is tomorrow. Oh, wow. So that's a lot of activity at, at the Ellis household right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's a busy time. Are, are your kids excited? Are they nervous? Are they scared? What, how are they feeling? Um, so the oldest has, has been in Kingston the whole time. So to him, this is business as usual. Um, obviously, the person who's just starting university is excited for all those reasons. Um, and, but and my youngest keeps going back and forth between being excited and being terrified. So um, we're we're trying to help her through that uh, those challenging emotions as best we can. But it's uh, it's tough. Oh yeah, it's it's uh, you know our kids are the same. They're seven and ten, and it's kind of like the range of emotions of uh, everybody's excited to see their friends, and yet it's it's going to be a very different experience than last time they were in school. But hopefully, we can all get through it together. Exactly. Yeah. Well, okay. So you know, as we you know, last time we spoke, we were just at the start of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and, uh, and you know, as you mentioned, we kind of had an idea where things were going. Uh, but you know, since then, uh, what have we learned about COVID nineteen in regards to some of the more common types of symptoms that people may experience? Well, I think we really expanded the list of symptoms. Of course, when we were first getting started with this whole thing, we sort of focused on the the really most common and, and most prevalent symptoms, which were fever, uh, dry cough, um, dyspnea. And now, of course, uh, I'm sure as you do as well when you enter your hospital, the list of symptoms that you run through that you confirm you do or don't have before you're allowed in the building has really expanded. So we now know that you can get um, atypical cases or those with milder symptoms, so things like uh, runny nose, uh, sore throat, um, unexplained fatigue, malaise, um, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, um, and really what's emerged as a as a more common symptom of the so-called so atypical COVID is this anosmia or dysusia, so a loss of smell or altered taste. Um, so we we really had had to expand our list of of things that we are paying attention to. Um, as ways that could be a possible way that COVID would present. So it does make it a bit more challenging when there's there's more symptoms on the list that uh, we have to be vigilant about. Yeah, I mean, it pretty much covers uh, everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, challenging indeed. Now, but what about some of the typical symptoms that somebody with seasonal allergies, allergic rhinitis, uh, what, you know, what do those symptoms look like? So there's certainly some overlapping symptoms, but there's others that really we think of as sort of hallmark of, of allergy. So again, allergic uh, rhinoconjunctivitis or so-called hay fever, as a lot of people still refer to it as, um, presents with nasal symptoms such as sneezing, uh, runny nose, nasal congestion, um, itchy nose, itching of the palate and throat. But also many patients also have very prominent ocular symptoms, so itchy, watery eyes, red burning eyes. And it's that itch that I think can really help people feel confident that the symptoms they're experiencing are much more likely to be related to seasonal allergies as opposed to COVID. That's one thing that has not uh, come out at all, uh, particularly. I mean, there is some cases of, you know, um, eye irritation and obviously the runny nose is there, but that, that itch uh, really is a hallmark of allergy, I find. Um, the other thing that we have in our favor in terms of sorting out ragweed allergy versus COVID is the seasonality. Um, you know, we know at least locally, uh, ragweed season starts like clockwork on August 15th every year, and it'll go through to our first frost, so somewhere to mid to late October, with the peak of ragweed season happening usually in the first or second week of September. And it comes back year after year in that exact same time frame. So for patients who experience these symptoms, and have done so for the past two or three years. If everything feels exactly like it did last year during ragweed season, chances are that's all you're faced with and you don't have to be overly anxious that for some reason now it's COVID as opposed to um, your usual allergies. Um, depending on where you are, and I recognize this, is a, this podcast is heard across North America, everyone has different access to testing, um, but certainly we're lucky right now in Ontario that anybody who wants to have a COVID test can have it and it's paid for by the Ministry of Health. So 
you know, I used to spend a lot of time sort of reassuring people, don't worry about it, you don't have to go get tested because you didn't have access to it anyway. Um, so now if people are super anxious and they just want to be sure, you can go ahead and get tested. But I do reassure people that if this feels just like your your allergies this time last year, chances are that's all you've got again this year. Oh, that's great advice. But, but you know, in your estimate, what percentage of patients are coming in for the first time ever having seasonal allergy symptoms, um, you know, to say see an allergist or their primary care doctor versus somebody who's had this pattern that's been established. Can you help us better understand that breakdown? Yeah, so it certainly depends on the age of the patient. Um, seasonal allergies usually, you know, you need to live through a couple of seasons to be really become sensitized. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically you don't see it before the age of five, six, seven, that general age range. So those might be people who are presenting for the first time. Again, the advantage you have in that population is um, COVID is very well uh, tolerated in children, and they don't usually get very symptomatic. So if they actually are having symptoms, then and it seems like the kind of things I've just been describing uh, for allergic uh, rhinoconjunctivitis or hay fever, then again, that plays into that odds. But you're right. Some people can just eventually, allergies develop at some point for those who were prone to do so. And this might be your first year ever. So again, looking at things like that, um, that itch feature, um, mm. having both nasal and ocular symptoms and not having the other things. So allergies don't cause you to feel completely run down. Usually mm. you might get a little tired from a bad night's sleep, but you're not exhausted uh, typically. Um, you don't get a fever. Uh, that is, even though they call it hay fever, there is mm-hmm. no fever actually involved in, in allergic rhinitis or seasonal allergies. So, uh, you know, fever, bad cough real shortness of breath. I mean, unless you have um, asthma as well, chances are those are not symptoms of just allergies and you should present to an assessment center for for testing. Mm, excellent. And you mentioned ragweed, but uh, tell us more, what are some of the, you know, outdoor seasonal pollens or, or, or molds or, who, you know, what's floating around right now in the autumn that's causing misery for millions of people with seasonal allergies? Yeah, so ragweed's the big ticket item, definitely, but other weeds are are pollinating right now as well. Uh, in our region, mugwort is an important um, co-allergen, and I know across most of the eastern seaboard it is in the U.S. as well. And you're absolutely right about mold spores, and they have been very active this year. Um, I get the weekly I get weekly pollen reports from our local aerial biology station, and I've been stunned by how many mold spores there have been throughout the summer. And they are definitely uh, floating around there as well. So lots of allergens out there, maybe not quite as many as there are in the spring because we're down to just, you know, one type of pollen and that's the weeds. Um, But unfortunately, mold really never goes away until we get into the depths of the winter, the deep depths of winter with snow and all that. So. Mm, okay. And what about people who have allergies to indoor allergens? Uh, will, Will they have any overlap during this time of year? And if so, why is that? Yeah, because if you've got dust mite allergy, of course, dust mites are love to live in your mattress and pillow, and it's impossible to completely eliminate them. And dust mites love ambient moisture, so they don't have the ability to uh, drink water, so they rely on ambient humidity for their source of, of water. So at times of high humidity, dust mite levels really, uh, they really thrive and they, and they multiply during those times. So you do see sort of a quote-unquote dust mite season uh, in August and late August, early September, on the, those hot, humid days. Um, so uh, those people who suffer from dust mite allergies are probably looking forward to those cooler uh, mornings of the fall when there isn't quite so much humidity in the air. Mm, okay. What about if you have a cat or a dog and, and you have allergies? Does that seem to get worse this time of year as well or not really? Well, I mean, if you have an, an allergy to a cat or a dog and you've chosen to live with a cat or a dog, unfortunately, that's just never going to go away. Um, again, I think the, the things you can do if you have chosen to keep uh, Fluffy or Fido, um, washing the pet once a week, um, trying to limit their access to your bedroom, those are the things that you can do to try to minimize your symptoms. But um, unfortunately, the, the, there is no real true cure for a pet allergy. Um, as you know, there's no such thing as a hypoallergenic dog um, until they invent one that doesn't have saliva or urine or skin, uh, there will always be allergen there. So it is, uh, it is unfortunate to be the best treatment for cat or dog allergy is to find a new home for, for the cat or the dog. Recognizing that that's a very, very hard thing to do um, as a dog owner myself. So um, but trying to do those other things. Um, and, you know, as I think if you can keep the, the animal out of your bedroom, that gives you eight hours of somewhat reprieve 
um, can make a difference. But there's no reason to think that they're going to get worse at this time of year in particular. They're just going to be there all year round. All right, Dr. Ellis, laying down the truth, pulling no punches, unless you have a dog <laughs> that has no saliva, skin, or urine. <laughs> they, they have allergen. Um, I also, I was chuckling of, uh, you know, if you've chosen to have a pet and you have pet allergies, so it's a very uh, diplomatic way of putting that. <laughs> um, okay, so let's shift gears a little bit here. Now, what about, what are some of the common types of respiratory viral infections that seem to circulate every autumn? And along those lines, why does it seem like everybody's fine all summer and then everybody gets sick once autumn rolls around? What's going on with that? So a lot of it has to do with, um, obviously, the back-to-school um, phenomenon. Uh, the rhinovirus is a seasonal virus that, that comes about at this time of year, uh, usually a little bit further into September. Um, but there's also non-COVID coronaviruses that uh, mm. are circulating uh, in the community at this time um, that cause that so-called common cold that we always wind up with inevitably in the fall. And it's usually through the vectors of the schools and, and the, the, you know, children get runny noses. And uh, up until recently, children were not very good at things like washing your hands or, um, you know, we weren't very good at cleaning off doorknobs and that sort of thing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we do see a mute, uh, like a dampening down of the typical rhinovirus season, given that we are going to be still stressing uh, hand hygiene and people will be wearing masks and trying to keep themselves distant. I, I don't hold up a lot of optimism that they will actually be distant from each other. So I'm really relying on um, children being having had it drilled into them how important it is to wash your hands very frequently. And um, and having children, are at least in our school board, are allowed to bring in their own bottle of hand sanitizer. And so we'll be uh, helping with that as well. Um, but it's because of that sudden rush indoors. Um, and it's being indoors in closed spaces. Um, schools we know typically do not have the best ventilation systems um, and I think it's that's why you see it in the fall not only is that uh, have are the children back indoors um, people are back from vacation they're not out enjoying the sun anymore it's time to buckle down and get back to work so to speak and everybody's more indoors once you get to this time of year and that's what allows um, easier transmission of viruses hmm it, you haven't mentioned influenza. What you know? How does that differ from these other respiratory viruses that you've described? Yeah, so influenza is, is a different type of virus, and it doesn't start its season until sort of October, November. Um, that definitely um, it has its own season. It really peaks in December, January, February. Um, there's two types of influenza that I don't think we need to dwell on the differences between A versus B. Um, but the difference with influenza compared to the rhinovirus or the so-called common cold is it ends up being a much more severe uh, illness usually. Um, common cold, as you know, uh, you can self-recover just with time and, and rest and t looking after yourself, whereas influenza can end up with a much more severe disease with just, you know, typified by really high fever, um, severe myalgias and fatigue. Um, and then other respiratory symptoms that go along with it. But uh, typically, high fever and myalgias are the highlight of, of how you can tell that it's influenza. But that, fortunately, that one gets a bit delayed and doesn't usually come along until earlier in the winter as opposed to first thing in the fall. Mm, okay. Now, you, you've touched upon this a little bit. And, um, you know, in regards to just our, our basic understanding of transmission of viruses and things along those lines. But specifically with COVID-19, can you describe how that is spread from person to person and then um, really talk about some of the basic measures uh, or reemphasize some of the basic measures you've already mentioned that we can all do to help limit the spread? Yeah, the, the vast majority of the data suggest, supports that COVID-19 is a droplet um, transmission. So it's not actually an airborne uh, condition where so something like um, uh, measles, for example. Mm -hmm. So again, the biggest thing is making sure that you're, you're you're keeping distance from people, that you are following proper hand hygiene, you're minimizing touching your face, um, because if and, and if you want to make sure that you're away from people. So if somebody is sneezing, um, they're not sneezing on you, uh, that sort of thing. Um, masks are suggested as as being an extra step um, that. Every little bit, it's one of these things where every little bit helps, right? Um, if you were trying to be looking at a mask that is absolutely positively going to 
make sure that you're fully protected. Um, those N95 masks, one, are in short supply, two, are really just not practical to be wearing all the time. So that's why the, the, the public health message has been the trifecta of, first and foremost, good hand hygiene, like super good hand hygiene. Secondly, physically, physical distancing. And thirdly, the masks. So uh, it is a droplet um, transmission, though. Uh, there's there's some new data now saying that we don't need to be quite as worried about fomite transmission. So that is somebody with uh, COVID having touched a door handle and now you touch that door mm -hmm. handle. Um, nevertheless, I think it's it's fine to be prudent. And, and I, we're still doing, particularly in the hospital where I work, we're still doing the re-sterilization of workstations before and after uh, we start a shift in a, in a shared clinic space, for example. Um, and, you know, obviously, depending on where you work, we... we we don't take any unnecessary precautions. We take all uh, precautions. Probably we're, we're going a little bit overboard, but again, when you're, you are you work in healthcare, you, you want to be um, more more cautious than not. Uh, sure. But I think the important thing to, to recognize is that this is still uh, considered a droplet transmission as opposed to something that's actually aerosolized. And I want to follow up with two important points on that one because I love the way you've described it. Um, one is with respiratory droplets. So with measles, theoretically, that means somebody with active measles infections, if they're in a room and then you walk into that room, that measles virus can remain in the air for some period of time that you can then breathe in. Whereas, you know, how is that different from like a respiratory droplet transmitted disease like COVID-19? That's a great way to clarify it. So yes, yeah, so you can't just pick up COVID from walking into a room where somebody was there 10 minutes ago and breathed into that air. Mm. Um, the um, COVID really is mainly transmitted through this droplet manner, which means you have to have contact with it somehow. Um, so whether that means that you go up and, and somebody sneezes and they didn't cover their mouth, for example, and that manages to get that uh, cross that six meter, uh, sorry, six feet uh, distance to you, um, that's how you're getting it. Or if you're um, close personal contact. So the most common route of transmission is actually household members. So somebody has mm -hmm. contracted it from uh, travel or wherever the, the original source was. Um, household contacts, unfortunately, they just can't keep that kind of distance and it's almost impossible to, to not have something that's transmitted through droplet um, means not transmit it. Um, but again, you can do it if you are really being good at the, you know super, um, super uh, hand hygiene um, and if you can physically distance from your spouse, which can be hard to do, um, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it is important just that you don't get it from breathing the same air as somebody with COVID. You have to have that close contact. Yeah, and you know, some people may be using this as an excuse to physically distance from their spouse, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the other thing I want to touch upon, which I love how you describe this, it's no, it's not one measure. It's not just like, you know, one thing is going to prevent the transmission of COVID and, and end this pandemic. It's really a bunch of little basic steps that sort of uh, aggregate together to help reduce risk. And along those lines, you know, in the United States, especially face masks have really become uh, a politically divisive topic. Uh, it's quite amazing what this has done. But, you know, taking politics aside, can you just explain to us from a, just a purely medical and public health standpoint, what's the purpose of wearing face masks during this pandemic? So the, the, the benefit of wearing a mask is it will reduce your likelihood of your COVID droplets getting on someone else if you're wearing a mask, even if it's non-medical grade. Um, there's data to show that even those cloth masks, um, if you happen to have contracted COVID, and you're wearing that mask, you're breathing much less of it, uh, those droplets out where they can then potentially come into contact with someone else. So they, they become important, particularly in areas where physical distancing just can't be done. Um, so if you can't keep the six feet away, uh, the mask becomes another layer of protection. It's also a way of showing that you care about keeping yourself healthy and keeping other people healthy. Um, I mean, I, I like to quote uh, the, the chair of infectious diseases, uh, Gerald Evans here, who says, the mask says I care about you and I care about me. Um, and that's really the way we viewed it in Canada is, is it's been, we recognize medically that a mask alone is not going to protect you from getting COVID. That's not the goal. The mm -hmm. goal is to put it into your, your, into your, as I say, your trifecta, into your bundle of ways of which we can help stop stop the spread. And uh, I think it also allows people to have more uh, faith and confidence in, in re-entering the world. You know, we went into phase three back in June, 
and having that universal masking in the in the city of Kingston before it was mandated by the province uh, even we we implemented it locally and that just gave everybody a lot more confidence to to face the world and we got used to it fast um, so mm. we've been wearing uh, universal masking in public places um, indoor sorry public indoor places uh, since um, yeah mid early to mid June uh, locally. Mm, that's a great description. Yeah, I recently heard the, the head of the World Health Organization refer to it as respiratory etiquette, uh, which yeah. I thought was just a, a lovely way to say, hi, I care about you. Um, I care about society. So, so therefore, yeah. I'm wearing a mask. Um, the other now, thing I'll just point out from a medical perspective is, and, and again, trying to avoid the political um, mm -hmm. implications. I think it's important for the public to recognize that um, wearing a mask does not impair your ability to breathe. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure you've seen there's lots of, um, you know, surgeons wear masks all day, every day, and they don't fall over from hypoxia. Um, there's great videos of people putting on as many as six cloth masks or six uh, medical grade masks, and their oxygen saturation stays solid at 99%. It may be uncomfortable and you get hot, but trust me, you are breathing, you are getting oxygen, you're not harming your health by wearing a mask. Um, and that we, that's something that we, um, specifically stressed to our asthmatics is there's no reason for an asthmatic not to be able to wear a mask. Um, yes, it's different. Yes, it's, it feels like you're getting a bit of restriction in your airflow, but really you're not. Especially if you slow down your breathing, you can really realize, oh yeah, I am taking in just as much air as I was before. It just feels weird. Um, and it, so I think it's important for people to spend some time um, practicing with your masks uh, and just re recognizing that you might have to breathe a little bit slower um, and just not to allow you to get that sort of a panicky feeling about it because it is different and it takes some getting used to. But I mean, now that we have universal masking, even in non-patient care areas of our hospital, um, I'm, I'm wearing one more often than I'm not. And uh, I've really gotten quite used to it. Mm, no, that's a great explanation. And I, you know, I used to hate wearing a mask when I, you know, whether it's, you know, going to see an inpatient consult where you had to, you know, protect them and all that other stuff. And it would really, I felt like my airflow was restricted. And the first couple of days where we were doing masks in, in the office and seeing patients back this summer, boy, I, I did feel it. I, and then I realized that it was really just the sensation of having that covering on my face and it wasn't causing any real issues from a respiratory standpoint. And then, like you said, I got used to it. Um, but, you know, it's important to recognize that because it does take a lot of getting used to. Yeah, and that's why we've been um, trying to, certainly in our family, we've been encouraging um, our children to practice in the summer mm -hmm. with the masks, knowing that this is, was going to be their reality, um, taking them out more often to the grocery store rather than avoiding bringing them with us so that you, you get a chance to just get used to it. Um, because if you just if you went from zero to full-time masking the first day of school, it's uh, not going to be as much fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, along those lines, any other tips to help, you know, get kids involved in either choosing the style of mask or getting used to wearing it? Yeah, I think involving your child in the decision about which masks you're going to, going to buy. Um, let them pick it out. Make sure it's a design that's of interest to them. Um, that makes a big difference, um, having them with you when you're, you're shopping around or shopping online, uh, as what I tend to do. <laughs> but, um, and also just um, you know, making sure that, that they know why it's important and to sort of, you know, and children are a lot smarter than we often give them credit for. And, you know, as, as you'll see any child who has a medical illness that actually requires them to wear a mask, they get used to it very fast. And uh, mm -hmm. children are a lot more resilient, I think, than parents often give them credit for. And, and if you explain to them carefully why this is important and, and, Yes, it's a hot, and yes, it's a bit of a pain, but you'll get used to it. And just like we've got used to Zoom, Google Classrooms, and things like mm -hmm. that, you do what you have to do. And um, you know, it's—I mean, some children just take to it and like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And others take a little bit more coaxing. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, as long as we're the ones supporting them through it and ex and trying to, as best we can, explain why it's important. Um, I think they'll almost almost any child will come around to it. I mean, there's obviously going to be some exceptions with, you know, developmental delay and et cetera, but that's mm. not the majority of children. Sure. Yeah, I remain hopeful that once they're with their peers in the classroom setting and they see everybody wearing masks, and plus, you know, teachers are, are so fantastic for so many reasons, but they really know how to, you know, get through to uh, children at an age-appropriate standpoint. Uh, that's why they're there. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm, I remain hopeful that that's going to help 
uh, improve mask wearing among children of all ages as well. And, you know, I may be proven wrong in the coming weeks, but we, we have that to look forward to as well. Yeah, we'll, uh, we will know more as it all unfolds. Oh, boy, we'll probably have you back in like two weeks just to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> um, okay, Dr. Ellis, this has been fantastic so far. But if you're ready, I need to ask you some of the tough questions. And questions okay. that you may, you may not have an answer for, but I think we need to discuss them and, and really hear your perspective as an expert when it comes to this. Um, and what you've discussed so far are really three major things all coinciding at the same time uh, that can cause overlapping symptoms this autumn. We have seasonal allergies. We have COVID-19, and then we have the typical viral upper respiratory infections. You mentioned itching before, but other than that, what? You know, how the heck can anybody tell these apart from one another? So again, when you have a, a viral infection, whether it be COVID or rhinovirus, you get other symptoms that you don't get with allergies. So that sore throat, um, the, the feeling just really dragged out and unwell. Um, again, fever with COVID, not so much with the common rhinovirus, um, but those sorts of things will really be a hallmark to say, Ugh, this is something other than just allergies. It's going to be challenging for, for schools because they don't know a sneeze from being from a cold versus allergies versus not. So I think we're all going to need to have a little bit of patience and understanding with each other. Um, I think we're going to see a real surge in use of assessment centers. Um, rightly or wrongly, as a way to show that, yes, my child's sneeze and cough is due to allergies, not COVID, or at mm. least it's the the common cold, not COVID. Um, every school is going to have their own school board, is going to have their own policies around that. I mean, I know we've been given very clear guidance. If you have any of these symptoms, you're not going to school. If you're well when you, you uh, show up at school, but then you get symptoms while you're there, you're going to be sent home. Um, and I think we're, you know, I really hope, I don't know exactly what your situation is like across the various states, but I really hope that there is good access for testing because uh, testing and a negative test and a rapid turnaround that allows that child to get back into school um, is going to be uh, so key for being able to make sure there's actually children in the schools now that we've reopened them. Um, and it's it's going to be anxiety provoking. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to, hide that reality is that everybody's going to be worried about any sneeze, any cough. But I think we also have to recognize that, that uh, if we're doing the things that we're telling everybody to do, if people really are washing their hands really frequently, if the teachers are or the janitorial staff or whatever has been put into place are actually Lysol wiping everything and sterilizing things at the end of the day and, and children are actually keeping their distance as best as they can from their friends and they are wearing masks then I'm hoping that we won't see quite as many colds this year. And so hopefully it won't become as much of an issue as it typically does. But if we think about, you know, a typical September, you'll be like, oh, nobody will be in school, right? Every kid's got a cold and we send our kids to school with colds. Mm -hmm. And if we can't send this kid to school when it's got a cold, everybody will be home. Well, I don't think it's, I'm hopeful that if we're doing all these things we're supposed to do to prevent COVID transmission, we can't but help to prevent the transmission of rhinovirus. And so I'm optimistic that we'll actually see, uh, we won't see the same um, um, September epidemic of asthma, for example, that's usually caused by that coincidence of ragweed season plus uh, rhinovirus season. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we won't see as many kids having to stay home from school because they're sick, because if they're doing everything they're supposed to do, um, you won't get the viruses being transmitted. Um, you know, I don't know what you observed in, in your area, but this is the first winter I've never had a cold because we were all washing our hands like crazy and we were not touching our face and we were doing all the things that uh, make it easy to get to pick up a cold from your child. Uh, we weren't doing those things. So, yeah. um, no, so we'll we... see. I mean, I'm hopeful. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that it will not be perfect. I'm quite sure that we'll, there will be some rhinovirus. It, it is out there. It's going to come. The public health assures us it's it has a season and it will be there, but perhaps we'll see reduced transmission and we won't see as much um, issues with that. Um, but again, I think it's going to come down to um, hopefully you're in an area where you have uh, rapid access to an assessment center so that you can find out for sure one way or the other and, uh, and take the appropriate steps so that if you do need to self-isolate for 14 days because it is covid You'll find that out fast and it won't get transmitted to all the other kids in the school, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's going to be the, the key. And I, I know that's going to be region dependent. Um, um, and But if, if, if in doubt, 
um, and you don't have access to testing readily, then the, the safest thing to do from a public health perspective uh, to protect uh, the other children in the school would be to have your child stay home. Mm, okay. No, that's a, a wonderful sort of explanation of the overlap of these and really the the nuances involved in trying to figure this out. It is going to be an interesting um, thing to see how this really plays out in real time across the the world, really. Um, but what you know, what are some steps that patients that have known seasonal allergies or asthma, um, what can they do now to help them prepare for this inevitable occurrence of symptoms this autumn? So get on good treatments. You know, we have safe and effective therapies to treat both allergic rhinitis and asthma. Um, it's even more critical for our asthmatics to be taking their controller therapies, whatever uh, that has been chosen for you by your physician, whether it be in your inhaled corticosteroids or um, other controller therapies. It is important that you really stay on them. Uh, you want to make sure that your asthma is as well controlled as possible. And similarly, if you do tend to suffer from hay fever, we've got so many good treatments. We've got safe second-generation antihistamines that are safe to use daily if needed. Um, we have safe nasal steroids. There's no indication that uh, nasal steroids is going to increase your likelihood of contracting COVID. Treat your allergies, um, minimize your symptoms, and then that will minimize the concern when you do have symptoms. Um, because if, you can, if you're on all your therapies, you'll hopefully be less or even asymptomatic and therefore you won't be getting the stink eye from the other people in the room when you're sneezing mm -hmm. and coughing. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that there's no reason not to take antihistamines and nasal steroids for, for hay fever. There's no reason not to take inhaled corticosteroids for asthma. If anything, now's the time to really uh, be ramping up our treatments to make sure everybody is as stable as possible. Mm, excellent. And what about from our standpoint, is there anything that allergists can do to proactively help our patients? Yeah, I think now's a great time to actually identify people who should be moving on from pharmacotherapy. Um, allergists have the unique ability to get to the root of allergy and actually change the underlying immune system through mm. the various immunotherapies we have at our disposal now. Um, as you know, for over 100 years, we've had subcutaneous immunotherapy as a treatment option. Um, and now we have many sublingual uh, immunotherapy tablets that can be used, which are uh, very appealing to the pediatric population because obviously kids are the ones who are less likely to sign up for weekly needles. Um, and there's, they're safe, effective, and can actually, you know, really treat the underlying allergy so that you're actually training your immune system to ignore the things you're allergic to rather than continuing to have allergic reactions to them. And we can get people so that they don't need to take nasal sprays every day for the rest of their life. Um, so now's the opportunity to really tune in for definitive management of your allergies. Mm. And would something like that really improve somebody right now, this season, or is that more of a long-term uh, you know, option? Is a, it's a longer-term process, um, depending on which route you're looking at. So for injectable immunotherapy, again, it's usually weekly injections for the first four to six months, followed by monthly maintenance injections thereafter. People really notice the, the real improvements uh, for sure when they get to those monthly maintenance doses. Uh, for the tablets, again, you, you treat either pre- and co-seasonally, or for the dust mite tablet, it's, it's year-round. Um, the onset of action for the tablets, obviously, you're, you're taking them before the season, so the idea is that you're treated before you get into season. Uh, for the dust mite tablet, people notice uh, improvement in their symptoms, usually around the three- to six-month mark of, of, on the tablets. Um, Obviously, there's issues around um, insurance coverage and, and whatnot that we all know how to navigate uh, more than we wish we more than we we, know, we wish we knew. Mm -hmm. uh, we wish we didn't know so much about it. I mean, but uh, um, but again, it is a way to to get to the underlying problem that's driving your symptoms in the first place. But yes, you're right; it doesn't work right away. Mm. And then, have you had any other either conversations with with families about um, how to navigate these nuances, or are you you know providing letters that you know say, hey, if Johnny sneezes, it's because he has ragweed allergy, or if he coughs, it's because he has asthma, or is there anything else that allergists can do along those lines? Certainly, we can provide um, medical letters to help uh, teachers be reassured that our, we know this patient and we know this patient suffers from allergic conditions. Um, you know, there's a little there's that can sort of cut both ways mm -hmm. um, because really, you know, I'm always a little bit cautious about sharing uh, medical information um, outside of the the circle of care, if you will. Um, but if it makes a difference to allow that child to stay in school, I'd be happy to do that. But again, I think the problem is at the end of the day, you, you can't say from looking at a sneeze, oh, that was a ragweed-induced mm -hmm. sneeze versus a COVID-induced sneeze. 
Um, so I think we will, I mean, I think we want to make sure that our patients have access to their medicines, and that's something I write letters for all the time, uh, so that they can have medicines at the school. Um, and if, you know, saying that this person is never, this person's always going to sneeze um, until the first frost, that might be reassuring as well. Um, we'll see. I haven't had any requests for that specific type of letter yet, but I sure have been signing a lot of medical forms for um, the usual, right? So not only asthma inhalers, but EpiPens and other mm -hmm. epinephrine auto injectors and that sort of thing. So, so far I haven't been asked for that type of letter though about, about it's okay if this person sneezes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, it is a tricky situation, that's for sure. <laughs> now, um, you mentioned the need to have testing, rapid testing for COVID. That, I mean, that's imperative, and we're not going to be able to get through this uh, unless we have widespread testing available. But what about for to try to figure out if it's allergies or a cold? Do we have tests readily available to determine that as well? Um, certainly not where I'm located because we don't have a test for the common cold. Now, that's something that's actually being rolled out. Um, there is a plan for um, a rapid respiratory uh, assessment from a nasal pharyngeal swab that will test for all three. So this mm -hmm. is something our local public health is, is trying to get rolled out in time for, for mid-September when we see the usual spike in, in respiratory illnesses where we'll, it'll check for RSV, uh, so again, for the younger, younger kids, influenza and COVID, all with the same swab. So that will be really helpful um, because not only can we pick up uh, COVID, but we can pick up these other um, viruses that can be potentially problematic. Um, but other than having sort of a background of skin testing and knowing what people are sensitized to um, and looking at the differences of the symptoms. So again, things like sore throat and feeling really dragged out typically don't go with um, seasonal allergies and things like itching of the nose and itchy watery eyes typically don't go with a cold um, so that's sort of what we'll be stuck with uh, at least mm -hmm. in my region I don't know if there's anything rolling out in the states for rapid access to rhinovirus testing that uh, maybe you're holding out on me about no, I mean, we certainly have the nasopharyngeal swab where we can do the, the testing for a whole panel of respiratory viruses. And we do that every winter, especially when, you know, children come in during flu season. But, you know, that requires, you know, you have to go to a, an urgent care or an emergency room. Uh, these aren't readily available at physician offices or point of care. Uh, it costs a lot of money. Uh, the current debate here in the United States is, you know, which which viruses do you include right now? Um, you know, we need to put COVID-19 on there as we have other coronaviruses, but every single virus you put on there, it delays the time until you get the results and it adds cost. So it is, uh, it, it it's not easy to sort out, but that's what we have right now. Yeah, and we're working on, um, I know there's a, a, a a, like similar something to a fecal blood, blood test that you can mail out to a patient where they can just prick their finger, put it on the card, and mail it back in to be uh, analyzed mm. um, for COVID, but that hasn't yet quite hit the ground. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, and again, we want to make sure we understand the performance characteristics of these tests. I mean, the good thing mm -hmm. about PCR tests from the nasal pharyngeal swab we know what that means. We know it's a high sensitivity assay. It means if it's negative, you really don't have it. Um, anything new that comes along, you know, you want to make sure you understand that, you know, we got we to have some more time with anything that's new to better understand how well it actually works. Um, is it really good at picking up real disease? Is it really good at not telling you you have a disease when you don't? Um, and until you have that information, you have to be a little bit cautious with any uh, new exciting test that comes to the market. Yeah, and I, that's uh, words of wisdom for our listeners who get the uh, all bombarded with the marketing messages because there are a ton of companies that are, are promoting these at-home tests, and uh, quite frankly, we have no idea what the, what they do and what they don't do. Um, so and you I think sure it's important that to realize that none of these things have gone through the normal regulatory um, assessments, right? Anything mm -hmm. that's been rushed through, and I get why it's been rushed through, it is important but it just hasn't gone through the same uh, rigorous evaluation by the FDA or Health Canada um, that anything else would have done. Um, so any other tests that we have been using up until COVID uh, went through a really rigorous evaluation before we were allowed to roll it out into clinical practice. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's important to recognize is that, yes, it's great that we have these new tests, but um, we don't really know for sure how good they actually are. Uh, we hope that they're certainly better than nothing, which is a terrible thing to say, but mm. unfortunately it's true. Um, if you have no tests, that's definitely worse than a test that may or may not be perfect.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what about treatment? You know, there's a lot of different types of medication available, um, or you know, natural you know products that people can take to help soothe their allergy symptoms. Will that work on uh, you know if you have COVID-19 or if you have the common cold? Well, I hate to tell you this, but a lot of natural therapies might soothe you exactly, but it doesn't actually do anything to treat your allergy symptoms per se. Um, and the similar same thing goes with common cold or with uh, COVID-19. Uh, there's no magic supplement that will, quote-unquote, boost your immune system and help you get over a cold faster. Um, I like to say the immune system isn't a car battery. You can't just boost it. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to do co- common sense things, you know, uh, making sure that you're well hydrated, you're well rested. Um, I think there's, it's important to recognize there are a lot of uh, marketing companies, as you say, that will make claims about things that will cure you of your COVID or your, COVID or your common cold. Um, these are not things that have been studied in any randomized controlled trial. Um, and I think it's important to recognize, too, to not take um, medicines uh, in the hopes that it's going to stop you from getting COVID when it hasn't been tested. So I think the hydroxychloroquine uh, story really did pan out to be exactly why you don't just start doing things because you think it's a good idea. Mm. You have to wait for and It's painful, but you do have to wait for the studies because it turns out that, that actually caused more harm than good. Um, the, there is some more data now that just came out yesterday showing that if you have severe COVID, uh, dexamethasone and other steroids definitely help you uh, increase your likelihood of surviving. So that's good data. That's what we want to be aware of. We don't want to be experimenting with our bodies with right now with untested um, therapies. Um, you know, again, you don't want to make a bad situation worse by taking things that we don't even know if they make any difference and they could just cause harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what about somebody who's just taking an antihistamine? Uh, is that going to, you know, mask COVID or will it actually treat to those symptoms or if you have a common cold as well? So antihistamines are helpful for allergy. Um, they, we end up taking antihistamines when we have common colds. Usually those older sedating antihistamines that um, can actually cause more side effects than they cause effects. In fact, that's what you sort of rely on is the sedation that puts you to sleep so you don't you sleep through your cold as opposed to it actually changing anything. It doesn't help you fight off the virus at all. Um, these are things that we take because we think they make us feel better. In fact, it's been shown that all these over-the-counter cough and cold formulations, they don't shorten the duration of your cold at all. Um, in, in, in the pediatric population, they've actually been delabeled so that you, it's actually not advised to give a lot of cough and cold preparations to younger children uh, because they're more likely to have side effects than they are to have any benefit. Um, so again, it's, it's a hard habit to break. You get used to picking up whatever your favorite over-the-counter cough and cold therapy is when you get a cold, but recognize that you're not making the cold go away any faster. Um, I'm a big proponent of just looking after yourself and not taking medicines that, that try to slow things, to, uh, make you feel better, because maybe it just slows things down and you don't get to clear the virus as quickly as you would otherwise if you're always taking um, things that dry up your nose. You really want to flush that virus out, let it run its course, get things on with your, get on with your day sort of thing. But um, mm-hmm. you know, take the day off and actually have a rest. Uh, that's really what your body needs to fight a virus. Okay, excellent. Uh, you know, as we wrap up here, I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, there, you know, as we head into flu season, it, it's interesting in the United States, we're actually starting to see some states or school districts mandate that every child receive the seasonal influenza vaccine this autumn if they're going to go for in-person learning. Uh, and we're going to avoid the politics of mandatory vaccination programs because that's a whole other issue that we don't need to get into. But um, <laughs> but why is it so important for as many people as possible to actually receive the influenza vaccine this autumn? Well, because of the fact that it's going to be hard enough um, trying to sort out whether or not this person's viral illness is uh, influenza versus COVID. And so even though we know the seasonal influenza vaccine is not 100% effective, you know, you can get it and and still get the flu. um, But any reduction in the burden of respiratory illness uh, is going to be critical to getting through what is likely to be our second wave of COVID. If we have influenza at the same time as a COVID pandemic, you know, we'll see those same sort of graphs we've been looking at. You know, we, you know there'll, be no, there'll be no ability to flatten the curve whatsoever if we can't make sure we keep our influenza numbers down as well, given how um, poorly some areas did at keeping our COVID numbers down. 
Uh, we don't have a vaccine for COVID yet. I highly doubt we will have one in time for, for January. And even if we did, you know, has, it's been fast-tracked how many people are going to want to use it. So if we can keep the burden of all respiratory illnesses down as much as possible, it will help us when, if and when we get another wave of COVID. Mm. Okay, excellent. Well, you know, one, uh, if I may, one last question, because I know you're active on social media and you do a wonderful job of providing evidence-based information through your Twitter account, which is at Dr. Ann Ellis, which is D-R-A-N-N-E-E-L-L-I-S. Uh, well, you know, are you willing to share some of your, your favorite uh, sources of misconceptions and or myths uh, regarding allergies or COVID-19 that you've encountered lately? Um, so if I recommend anybody, uh, everyone actually should follow uh, Timothy Caulfield. So at, mm-hmm. at Caulfield, Tim uh, is his handle. Uh, you yourself are excellent at promoting good, uh, solid evidence base. And you actually take on a lot of, of uh, uh, pseudoscience challenges that, that even I don't dare to stray into. Uh, <laughs> alluded to the, uh, the, the vaccination uh, controversy. Um, but I, and I think following professional societies, professional organizations, I mean, like the Quad AI and like the American College, um, those sites are really good at putting out uh, real uh, science and real uh, data, and as opposed to um, trying to get your, your medical information from the Kardashians, I think it's much better to get your science from doctors and uh, professional societies as opposed to celebrities. Well said. Hey, you know, Dr. Ellis, thank you again for taking time to join us today. This was great. I hope we don't have to have you back to discuss COVID-19 in the winter, but you're always welcome back as a guest. <laughs> uh, 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 do you have any there won't be ragweed in the, de- in, the, in the dead of winter. So That's true. That's very true. Right. <laughs> um, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience before we depart? I think, I mean, I probably I'm already you know, sort of preaching to the converted, but just to engage with your allergists. I mean, we're here to help you. Um, we're all back in full swing, whether mostly virtual, obviously, as opposed to in person. But um, I've more, I'm more busy clinically now than ever um, uh, because of the fact that we can do telemedicine. I'm not hamstrung to a, a specific clinic date, so I can do telemedicine visits urgently for my patients who need to speak with me. Um, so I just I encourage you to, to reach out to your allergist, or if you don't have one, uh, find one. Find an allergist and find relief. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.